You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. All the way down south where I was born, all the down. Western clothing and sportswear companies who've raised concerns over the use of forced labor in the province's cotton industry. Nike, H&M and Burberry are among the big brands facing a boycott in China. H&M was the first to face the backlash. Shortly after, H&M disappeared from two of China's major shopping platforms. A row of Nike trainers set on fire by one of millions of angry Chinese consumers. So what are the results? Can you survive in the Chinese market? Can you still make money from the Chinese? You can't earn a penny. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I am Finbar Birmingham, the Europe correspondent at the South China Morning Post. Things are heating up here in Hong Kong, both politically and meteorologically. The mercury is touching 26 this afternoon, while the Chinese government has finally confirmed a sweeping reform of the city's electoral system, sending a new chill through Hong Kong's opposition camp. We missed you last week, so we're going to catch up with some of the major eruptions of the past fortnight today, including Sanctions Fest. Last Monday was a real whirlwind of a day, one of those times where, as a journalist, you're struggling to even catch your breath. The EU, UK, US, Canada, they all slapped sanctions on China over the space of a few short hours, followed by a stinging rebuke from Beijing on Brussels at least within minutes. China retaliated on the other parties later in the week. We'll discuss this with political economy editors John Carter and Joe Shin in the first half of the show, but we're going to follow that narrative into this week as well. Over the past couple of years running this podcast, John Carter and Joe Shin have talked time and again about China's biggest weapon, its consumer market. Over the past two weeks, folks, we have seen this weaponization in action, with consumer boycotts of European brands in response to their positions on Xinjiang, which were not new, but which were dredged up in response to the sanctions. The message was clear and we look forward to discussing some of the firms affected by this later in the show with Linda Liu, one of the star reporters on our China desk who was covering these stories as they emerged and who was the first person I saw to use the phrase in English, which had been pervading Chinese social media last week, one cotton, two systems. First off, let's talk to John and Joe Xin. It's Thursday morning. We are back with John Carter and Joe Shin, our political economy editors. We missed you last week, so we're going to go through a few of the political eruptions that happened while we were away. Uh, Last Monday, we had what was a bit of a sanctioning blitz. We saw, first of all, the European Union, as expected, slap sanctions on Chinese officials and one organization for alleged human rights infringements in Xinjiang. Immediately after that, China hit back pretty hard. They went for 10 European individuals and four entities. Within the entities, however, was the Political Security Committee at the European Council, which meant that essentially every ambassador for a European member state to Brussels and his family is now banned from going to China, Hong Kong, Macau, banned from transacting. It didn't go down too well in Brussels, a lot of upset. And of course, shortly after that, we saw further sanctioning from the United Kingdom, from the United States and from Canada. Joe Shin, I'll turn to you initially. Uh, this was a bit of a whirlwind. I was covering it live. I'm sure you were following it very closely as well. Were you, first of all, were you surprised by how quickly um, China bit back on sanctions, particularly towards the European Union? 
Oh yes, Fingba, this is uh, really extraordinary because uh, usually, you know, uh, for a Chinese person who grew up in Chinese. Uh, society and sanction western sanctions are sometimes are always like uh, you know one way it's uh, it's always since uh, funding of the people's republic is always you know the U us or the impoverished countries uh, imposed the sanctions on china and in 1989 after tma you know the western countries again sanctioned china and uh, some impact is still lasted to today and it's very rare for China to hit back, you know, say, no, we have the power to sank you, you know, uh, if you if you if you dare to sanction me. So this is a, this is a quite really um, uh, uh, maybe this is a, you know, part of this, the, the West is decline and the East is rise mentality. You know, China is now for the Chinese government. We now have the economic power. We now have the military capabilities and uh, we want to fight for the power of the narrative you know uh, we are not you know the the, the always the, the side being criticized or being wrong you know it, it could be you that are making mistake so this is a this is a broad context i want to uh, uh, to highlight i mean it, it is this kind of mentality that uh, beijing is reacting so strongly you know for the Chinese government, they must have calculated some of the repercussions from if China announces these sanctions among the European institutions and individuals, there must be some consequences. But for China now, the answer is like, yes, we calculate it, you know, but the final decision is uh, we can take these costs and we will we'll go ahead with our own sanctions against you guys so that you can remember, you know, sanctioning China will have a price for you to pay as well. So in the next time, you know, you're not going to be so... The old playbook basically is a, is, is no longer no longer valid, and China is no longer China in, in its uh, its weak or uh, secondary player on the stage. Mm -hmm. China want to take the initiative, and if you criticize China, if you sanction China, you know expect Beijing to hit back. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it, a great point, Jushin. Interesting to to hear that dynamic because. Um, I think one thing to say initially is I think that the European Union didn't really go for the jugular with these sanctions. They didn't sanction uh, the top um, Communist Party official in Xinjiang, uh, Chung Kwanguo, which the United States did sanction last July. Um, and, and John, I wonder what you think. Um, this seems to have been an effort to do this in a managed way by the European Union, if such a thing is possible. But um, it's really grown arms and legs. Um, you know, China's retaliation, as I said, hasn't gone down too well in Europe. It's threatened the investment deal and so on. It's put that in, in jeopardy. But miscalculation here on, on either side? Uh, too soon to say. Um, but first of all, the, the Europeans move is highly symbolic. It's their first penalties on China since Tiananmen in 1989. So that and that alone, even though, as you pointed out, the sanctions are rather restrained, it's still highly symbolic. And it came in coordination with sanctions by the U.S., Canada and the U.K. at the same time. And so this may be China. Uh, firing a shot across everyone's bow saying this isn't going to work you guys are going to pay a price uh, for doing this now the u.s has kind of made up its mind on china on these things and and this is going to continue uh, europe is still on the fence in many ways and how this will affect 
uh, for instance, the consideration of the uh, investment treaty with China will be interesting to see as it plays out. They sanctioned China sanctioned some of the key players in that debate in the European Parliament, and that may end up backfiring. Even, as you pointed out in your writing, Finbar, even parliamentarians in Europe who are not uh, necessarily skeptical of the investment deal are saying you have to remove these sanctions before we even talk about ratifying this treaty. And so in some ways, it may backfire on China. But this has been their uh, recent uh, way of doing business, the whole wolf warrior culture of striking back and striking ha- back hard, both in terms of rhetoric and in terms of action. And um, mm-hmm. the, it will be interesting to see how this plays out in the months ahead. And it, it, it's across a broad spectrum of issues. And for instance, you see all the Chinese vessels uh, around uh disputed atolls in the South China Sea. And uh, this is uh, China taking aggressive action against Philippines' claims to those same uh, islands. And, uh, and of course, we have the conflict with Japan in the East China Sea. These things are going to continue to crop up. So China is, as you uh, alluded in your introduction, it's weaponizing its domestic market. That's the billion Chinese consumers argument. And to put that into perspective, that's three times the size of the entire American population. So this is big. They think that the world needs the Chinese market more than China needs other countries. And that's the uh, theory behind the whole dual circulation strategic economic strategy is that we are going to depend for future growth. That is, China mm-hmm. will depend for future growth on our domestic economy. We will be more independent um, and we will focus domestically. And so we'll have to see how this plays out. But clearly, uh, it did, the initial impression did not go over well uh, in, the, uh, in Europe. Yeah, indeed. I want to take a step back and ask um, Joshin a question here. Um, I'm wondering, Joshin, if this maybe was a couple of years ago before the start of the trade war, might we have seen a different reaction from China? I get the sense um, that in the last year in particular, there's been a shift. Um, Maybe previously China was keen to avoid any such sanctioning, any tariffs, any export controls. It was keen to sort of, you know, keep in the good books of of the West, of America and, and Europe and so on. That seems to have really changed over the last year. And I wonder whether the calculation has been made on the Chinese part that it's already withstood the trade war. Its economy is bigger. Um, it's a par- more powerful nation than it was before. So is there a sense in China that it's almost bulletproof now, like that it can withstand any of these sanctions that the, 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 the Western powers may throw at it, and thus it has no problem reacting as strongly as it does? Well, Fingbai, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, a few years ago, China also tried some sanctions, but these kind of uh, boycott or, uh, you know, boycott foreign uh, brands, it's more targeted. It's more, it's 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 very uh, small product. For instance, you know, the fruits from the Philippines or, you know, uh, particularly at one country, at one uh, South Korean. But now, I mean, uh, 
the the boycott is almost against you know every every foreign government brand which is member of the Better Cotton Initiative. But this boycott is particularly uh, the worrying because it's certainly by scale and by impact is the uh, largest ever in recent history. And if you look at uh, the, these brands, I mean H&M is still a kind of uh, you know uh, urban brand uh, from Swedish. It's okay, but for Nike and Adidas, I mean if you look at Find a Three. Young young men or boys on the Beijing street or on the Shanghai streets. I mean, definitely one of them are wearing either uh, Nike or Adidas. So this is a kind of huge. I, I don't know uh, what's the calculation behind this, but the Chinese government it seems also. At, at one hand, it has to uh, use this kind of nationalism sentiment. At the other hand, it also trying to detach itself. You know, the foreign ministry spokeswoman Hua Xing said, you know, it's consumers. You know, it's not the, cho- the choice by uh, Chinese government. Okay, if they have this uh, opinion to uh, boycott Nike or Adidas, it's their freedom. Of course, you can have different arguments to get against this, but this is a, this is a Chinese uh, uh, government stance. And also, more interestingly, because many of the sports brands are, have sponsorship agreements with Chinese national teams, uh, Chinese male soccer team, for instance, uh, has this uh, sponsorship with, uh, with with Nike. And also, it happened just uh, one and a half year before the Beijing Winter Olympics, which China is trying very hard, you know, to defy these kind of boycott accusations. So if this whole thing uh, getting out of hand, getting out of control, it might be, you know, bring risks for the Beijing Winter Olympics. Basically, it's feeding excuses for those who already support the boycott of Beijing Winter Olympics. So it's, yeah. uh, as we reported, you know, after a few days of like, you know, people burning their Nike shows, showing a kind of video, there, there were also some restraints. A, all the all the shops are meant to basically open. No one smashed the windows. You know, there was no uh, reports of vandalism. And, and B, the Chinese government is kind of still detached from all the uh, all this uh, movement. So we can see it's kind of died down a bit. But how this is going to be end, uh, nobody have any uh, any clear clear idea like how this is going to end. I don't know about that because I think we're going to see a bit more on the political side. It's so linked, and I think I just wanted to sort of draw that line. I mean, once the sanctions from the European Union came in last Monday, we soon after saw saw these boycotts and in which Communist Party youth on social media dredged up old statements of the H and M. I think from the WeChat page or Weibo page or something about using cotton from Xinjiang and so on. So there was a real link there. And John, I wanted to ask you, this is different because I think during the trade war, it was quite marked that there was no um, huge effort to boycott American brands. Um, It seemed as though that the Chinese media was always quite careful to not really feed into that sort of frenzy um, as it did with the Japanese over disputed territories in the past, over Korea uh, with regard to the placement of American missile deterrents um, in, in, in South Korea. Um, this seems a bit different. It's like, you know, once the, the European Union puts its sanctions on straight away, this sort of, um, you know, net as an army is unleashed. And although Joe Shin says, as you know, the Chinese government has said it's not officially sanctioned, but it certainly has that feel to it. Well, one of the uh, conventional wisdoms about China's uh, diplomatic uh, relations with the U.S. versus those with the European Union is that it um, is much more deferential to the U.S. because it's a military power and the European Union is not. And so, therefore, you get a different uh, 
uh, diplomatic policy. And this may be one of the factors that's playing into the European Union. The other factor in in sanctioning uh, um, the EU is perhaps they want to nip uh, Biden's uh, efforts to create alliances against China in the bud. They want to say, okay, you go ahead, but it's going to have consequences for you. And so we'll have to see in the future, uh, for instance, Europe's willingness to do to go further on sanctions on China for whatever reason, um, and whether this shot across the bow was enough to get them to think twice. Yeah, that's a great point. And Josian, what do you think about the investment deal? Um, there is a sort of uh, undercurrent, I won't say a conspiracy theory, but a, a bit of a, a sentiment setting in in Brussels that maybe China doesn't really care about it, because certainly it's not going about... Uh, having it ratified in the way that you might predict uh, by sanctioning, as we mentioned, high-profile European parliamentarians, Reinhard Budikofer, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, among them the head of the European Parliament delegation to China. Um, There's also this uh, feeling that a week after the investment deal was agreed, exactly one week, um, you know, there was a crackdown in Hong Kong. Some European officials um, think this was a slap in the face, um, you know, to have agreed this deal and then straight away China sort of cracked down or Hong Kong cracked down on national security elements. There is a feeling in, in Brussels maybe that China doesn't care whether this is ratified or not. What do you think about that? Well, that's very interesting because for, for Chinese government, one kind of uh, consistent policy is that it's trying to separate you know, these, all these uh, human rights and uh, disputes of uh, Xinjiang and Hong Kong from the trade issue. You know, th- this is a, this is a Beijing's message to the rest of the world, you know, we are a communist country, but we are open for business. And if you want to do business, you have to accept the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a communist country. Um, Ruling system, and this is this. I think is uh, it's a it's a big background uh, of this. But to as for the investment deal specifically, I think there are some concerns in uh, China that you know uh, these boycott sanctions will cast a shadow of it. But as uh, as the Chinese foreign minister said, you know it's not something it's not something uh, a gift from the European Union. It's a it's a it's a bilateral thing. So China will not uh, sacrifice its uh, interest just for sake of it. So at this moment, uh, you know, no one can see how. Uh, how, how soon it will be going to be rectified. It took seven years for China European to negotiate the deal. Maybe it will take longer to rectify this. Who knows? But anyway, uh, one thing is clear from China is like that. Okay, we will continue to be strong, to be hardline on the issues of Xinjiang, of human rights, of Hong Kong. On the other hand, we are continue to be, you know, open, sending this like open for business uh, message to the European. Now, how much uh, the European Union will take this? It's up to the Brussels. It's not up to Beijing. But Beijing is basically kicking this ball to the to the court of the European Union, saying, you, you know, do not expect that because we want this investment deal, we're going to make concessions on other issues. But, you know, it's your choice. Since we are, we have drawn the lines in the and now it's uh, it's your call whether you want to just invest in deal or not. Yeah, that's really interesting. Very well put. John, I want to just turn back to you quickly. Um, you know, Zhou Xin has just said that uh, China is always keen to separate, to keep human rights and business and trade on separate tracks. That's not just a Chinese thing, right? We've seen some statements by big companies to that effect this week as well. 
No, indeed. And, and let's use Boeing as an example. Boeing is one of the U.S. big manufacturers. Uh, its exports are huge because, of course, uh, each passenger jetliner is worth millions of dollars. And it has a big stake in China. Um, China has not uh, uh, allowed uh, Boeing to resume flying the 737 MAX, even though the U.S., Europe, and other countries have. And so some believe that the China is uh, keeping uh, the, the suspension on uh, the 737 MAX to retain its leverage in negotiations with the United States. And Boeing has a huge stake in the uh, Chinese passenger jet market, which is going to mushroom in the years ahead as Chinese become more wealthy and, and travel uh, not only domestically, but within Asia and the world. And so uh, Boeing is warning. Uh, Boeing effectively called for this separation of trade policy and human rights policy, because if they're linked and China says, we're not going to do business with you. It loses out in this huge China market, mm -hmm. which will affect not only Boeing as a company, but also the United States, given the emphasis on trying to uh, improve American manufacturing. Um, and where this ends up, we don't know. Um, we know this week that the new USTR, Catherine Tai, that's the U.S. Trade Representative, uh, has said that she's not interested in, in uh, at least at the moment, in reducing any of the trade sanctions. They say, why would I give up my leverage? And so there, it, it suggests that there's a negotiation to be had. Uh, China does certain things, for instance, for Boeing, and the U.S. lightens up on the trade sanctions. But we'll see. That's too early. Uh, yeah. But, but to use it, another transportation analogy, I wonder if in Boeing's case, do they not see that that ship has already sailed? Because <laughs> what we've seen the past, honestly, I feel like in the past 10 days, we've reached a Rubicon moment where businesses have to accept that these two, these are not separable. You know, the way that the, 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 this issue has been handled by Beijing, also the way that um, the US is uh, determined to sort of continue cracking down. I think it's quite wishful thinking, really, on, on Boeing's part. Well, in terms of uh, the United States, the sentiment, as you know, is bad and it's getting worse. And um, uh, the Biden administration, at least so far, is proving to be as tough on China as the Trump administration has been or was. Um, and we'll see. You can tell me about the, the outlook for European sentiment, but um, it, it, I would suggest that at least initial indications are that these counter sanctions by China have made the issue more difficult in Europe mm. and, that, and that perhaps the Europeans will decide that they have nothing to lose and will go ahead with more sanctions. We'll see. It's interesting in Europe. I'm not sure it's as cut and dry as that. Certainly sentiment is shifting and the sanctions haven't helped that. But I actually spoke to one of the MEPs who had been sanctioned last week, Michael Galler, who's a European People's Party um, MEP from Germany, he actually said, I don't want to um, essentially become a crusader. I, I still support the investment deal. My situation shouldn't be indicative of, um, you know, the broader economic benefits of engaging with China. So there definitely is a, still a, 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 an ocean between um, how Europe and parts of Europe are viewing um, the relationship with China and how it's generally viewed in the United States in that there's still a very strong consensus in, in Europe um, that, you know, you have to manage commercial relations with these sort of political and human rights questions. But I'm also reacting to things like the recent statements out of the Chinese embassy in France. They're very mm. critical, very 
sharp. I mean, not something you'd expect to hear hear from diplomats in any forum. Yeah. Um, and of course, France reacted very badly to it. If this wolf warrior uh, method of doing business continues, it could very easily backfire on China. But again, they seem very confident that their domestic economy is something that everybody wants and needs. And therefore, at the end of the day, people will come back to them, regardless yeah. of how they behave. Yeah, we'll I think what we're seeing, uh, we saw across Europe last week and this week in Ireland, actually, the uh, Irish, uh, the RTE correspondent to China, who is married to the BBC correspondent, left China for Taiwan and the Irish embassy took a very hawkish um so the Chinese embassy in Dublin took to social media to be very critical of this decision and so on. And I wonder at what stage do we start considering that this wolf warrior um, approach is not a wrinkle in the system, but it is the system. You know, this seems to be exactly what it is at the moment, John. No, indeed. Well, it's they, the fact that they keep doing it, given the um, strong pushback from the West on this, suggests that they think it's working. It's what they want. And then maybe this is coming all the way down from Xi. You'll notice the statement after uh, the uh, sanctions on the various companies for the cotton dispute was uh, China will not be bullied anymore by the West. And OK, um, so China is going to bully itself. And so... Where does this end up? I mean, you could draw some very dire consequences in the longer run, um, uh, but, you know, it does it promote decoupling? Does it promote a separation uh, of the West from China? And is it likely to lead to additional conflict of one form or another. I think that's inevitable to a certain extent, but we shall follow it closely. Uh, for now, John, Joshin, thanks so much for joining us today. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Before we move on to part two and my conversation with my colleague Linda Liu about some of the specific companies caught up in this over the past week or two, I wanted to take a look back at how we got here. It's fair to say that many people who aren't focused on China might not even have heard of Xinjiang until sometime over the past year. And now when I speak with people around the world, friends at home in Ireland, sources in Europe, the United States, they're all asking about the Uyghurs and it's quite a surreal situation that's really snowballed to give a sense of perspective, while there was some really strong reporting from the international media on what was happening in Xinjiang before this, I think we can trace the rise in the story to about October 2019. That's when the US government first took action against what it described as human rights abuses in Xinjiang, where a million plus Uyghurs and other ethnic Muslims are alleged to be detained and subjected to forced labour conditions. It's important to note at this point that the Chinese government denies all those charges, both forced labor and human rights abuses. The US then added 28 companies to its entity list, which effectively means US companies, American companies are banned from selling to them. In the same month, it slapped visa bans on Chinese officials involved in Xinjiang. And it was around now that people started looking at the Xinjiang supply chain, realizing something was brewing. Shortly afterwards, somebody sent me a diagram trying to explain it, which depicted the Xinjiang cotton industry's role in global supply chains. 
It looks a bit like a bowl of multicolored spaghetti, or maybe a particularly tangled bunch of tumbleweed that has been dipped in kaleidoscopic paint. That's to say, it's pretty tangled and messy. Xinjiang is home to around 85% of China's cotton, 22% of the global supply. It's massive. For companies trying to avoid using it, the past 18 months has been a bit of a nightmare really because once it leaves the auction, one bale of cotton is pretty much the same as the next. Companies at this point were already spooked. They realised that the Trump administration was rattling things up and lo and behold, more sanctions and bans came in the following summer, this time including on the Communist Party's top official in Xinjiang, Chen Kuangguo, last July. This was followed up by the sanctioning of 11 Chinese companies, including the giant Xinjiang Production Corporation Corps, or better known as XPCC, a quasi-paramilitary organization that has run towns and cities across Xinjiang for years. This is the single most important organization in the Xinjiang economy, and US companies and individuals are now banned from trading with it. At this point, the textiles industry was in disarray. Over the past year or so, we've been pulling at these threads, these pieces of spaghetti, if you will, trying to learn more about it. And now the US is moving towards a total ban on goods made using forced labour in Xinjiang. The catch to this is that the buyer must be able to prove that it's not made using such means, which means it's a tricky one in a supply chain that is deep and opaque. Some of our reporting we've discussed on the show in the past found that John Deere, the iconic US farm brand, was selling machinery used to pick this cotton in huge quantities to Xinjiang. That has now stopped thanks to sanctions. This was followed up by an effective ban on Xinjiang cotton products by the United States late last year. And now, as you've heard on this podcast, the EU, UK, Canada are getting in on the act too. I spoke to one manufacturer this week who said that because their suppliers are not using Xinjiang yarn, his costs are already up 30%. This will eventually go to the consumer, he told me. We've also found that cotton is only one, albeit very large, part of this story. Xinjiang made solar panels, as we reported in December, are to be used in a solar farm in California that will deliver power to Microsoft. And in another story I did this week with my colleagues Jacob Fromer and Sissy Joe on another thread in the textile supply chain that the Xinjiang authorities are attempting to transform into a world leader. This was Viscose Rayon, which is a wood-based fabric we found was taking raw materials from the forests of Finland processing it in Xinjiang and pumping out material for the rest of the world. When asked by the local press in Finland about our story, the Finnish paper and pulp giant Stora Enzo said it would withdraw from the viscose industry altogether. Again, this shows that companies are spooked. In the current political climate and given the impending bans and the likelihood of future sanctions, this is going to keep rolling and rolling. It'll become more complex for businesses involved in China who are effectively being forced to pick sides. Now let's talk about some of the individual companies that are in the current firing line with my colleague Linda. I'm with Linda Liu, who is one of the reporters on our China desk. Uh, Linda has been following very closely the fallout uh, from the boycott movement that's underway in China towards some uh, international fashion and apparel brands. Linda, great to have you here. Uh, What started as an official statement just over a week ago has blown up into a fully-fledged boycott starting on social media and involving Xinjiang cotton. Take us back to what happened on Wednesday of last week, Linda. Sure. um, So basically, 
basically, last week, the week started off with the EU and US and a few other countries announcing sanctions against China. And I think the Chinese government was obviously not pleased about that. And then some official uh, state media social accounts started flaming this uh, boycott movement on social media, which uh, a lot of Chinese online users supported. H&M, the Swedish uh, fashion brand, was the first one to be mm-hmm. named. And then that was followed by Nike, Adidas, and a whole uh, range of other brands. They are all part of this uh, global sustainability program called the Better Cotton Initiative, which last year said they suspended uh, licensing and field level activities in Xinjiang. Chinese consumers um, said they were not going to buy these brands. You even saw some users posted videos of them burning uh, Nike shoes, <laughs> which I have to say is uh, not new because there was a anti-Japanese uh, boycott movement back in 2011, 2012, I think, mm-hmm. uh, which we also saw similar similar things happen. Mm-hmm. This is, um, so, so I want to talk about the origins of this, obviously the sanctions and so on. How organic was this movement, Linda? Because I understand the Communist Party youth was involved in uh, firing this up a little bit on social media. But I mean, in your sense, is this something that is really, um, you know, uh, organic or is it something that's contrived? What, what do you reckon on that? So I was also trying to trace uh, where this whole boycott cause started. And from what some academics have noted is they think the roots of this went back to a very popular discussion group on, uh, online on the social media platform called Douban. This discussion group is very big. I think there's maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands of users. And uh, many of them are actually quite patriotic. Uh, so I think it started uh, maybe as an organic discussion on this online group where they said, oh, H&M and these uh, clothing retailers actually said they are not going to use Xinjiang cotton. And I think it snowballed from there. The Chinese Communist Youth League then picked up this discussion and uh, used it basically for their propaganda machine. And then that spread onto the wider Chinese social media. Yeah. And so you've seen these brands who made statements six, 12 months ago, maybe even more, now getting these dredged up and they're being hauled over the coals because of um, a very political situation. Linda, what do you see um, as the sort of official response here? We saw Hua Chunying take to the lectern at her weekly press conference and um, deliver what was quite an interesting, um, some remarks about, uh, you know, comparing, um, you know, human rights abuses in the United States, for example, slavery in the cotton fields to what is modern day Xinjiang. You know, talk us through a little bit about that official response and how that has been greeted in in China and whether that has poured uh, fuel on the flames of this. Yeah, I was flabbergasted actually when Hua Chunyun posted that on, when she actually, she posted pictures of that on Twitter as well as showing pictures and the uh, media briefing and I think maybe she is targeting a domestic audience because that 
that comparison did not go down well in overseas social media. So Hua Chunyin held up uh, this picture of what she alleged to be African-American slaves picking cotton in the American South plantation farm. I think um, her logic was that, you know, the U.S. has had these atrocious human rights abuses in the past. And so they will accuse China of doing the same because they are coming from this... um, Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to drag China to their low playing field, I think, is what her logic is. But obviously, I think um, to an overseas audience, you know, just putting those two images side by side, you have one of African-American slaves picking cotton and another one of Uyghur workers also um, in the cotton field. I think that already drills into people's minds, you know, what kind of nature of the work is um, yes. is referring to here. Yeah. Indeed. Maybe didn't have the intended effect. I want to ask you about the um, celebrity uh, factor in this. We've seen a lot of Hong Kong and Chinese, even Taiwanese uh, celebrities get caught up in this, either uh, cancelling their agreements with sponsors or coming out in favour of this or that. Tell us a wee bit about, Linda, how that happened. Yeah, so I will have to maybe give a little bit of fan culture background here. I think in the past uh, maybe decades, several years, Chinese fans has um, grown into this really powerful group that basically monitor their idols. They monitor these celebrities for, you know, um, behaviors. Um, you know, in China, we do have this nationalist um, uprising. So these uh, fans are also very nationalist. They will hold their celebrities to a standard where they have to be patriotic and they have to, you know, do right by China. And so when the H&M boycott started and which then led to others like Nike and Adidas, Chinese fans basically uh, started telling their celebrities um, that you also have to, you know, end your endorsement deals with these brands to show that you're patriotic and you're not going to let other countries insult China like this. And so the celebrities, um, you know, we have uh, teenage idols like Wang Yibo, we have actresses like Yang Mi, um, all very popular in China. And they would put out statements saying, you know, we have ended our endorsement deals because the interests and rights of China will come above all else. And so I think the celebrities basically have no choice. They have to do this or else, you know, they face a very, very powerful um, fan culture machine. It's amazing to see that in motion, uh, you know, all these elements of Chinese society being weaponized, be it the consumer base, be it the fan base of these idols, really fascinating to see. And Linda, the um, I wanted to ask you about this specific example because um, you were writing about the German brand Hugo Boss um, last week. Now, obviously Hugo Boss has sort of questionable <laughs> record with human rights in its own uh, in its own history, but generally 
it was one of the brands that really uh, fell victim of, of what happened in China and didn't help itself whatsoever with its response, Linda. Well, tell us about the example of Hugo Boss. Yeah, so Hugo Boss also was pressured to make a stand by its Chinese uh, consumers because it's a, you know, it's a Western fashion brand. And so then Hugo Boss uh, last week on its uh, Chinese social media platform Weibo they released a statement that said they will continue to use uh, and support Xinjiang cotton and that, you know, they will also resolutely defend China's sovereignty. I think a lot of people view that statement as a basically a firefighting tactic, um, you know, um, faced uh, by this uh, risk of being boycotted in the Chinese markets. And so when I saw that, I then contacted Hugo Boss headquarters in Germany, you know, to verify is this statement, you know, endorsed by the wider Hugo Boss uh, group. Mm-hmm. But when when I got in touch with the headquarters, they actually said, no, we have not sourced from Xinjiang and we do not source from Xinjiang, which obviously is in direct uh, contradiction to what their Chinese branch has said. When I asked them, well, you have your China branch saying this and you are also saying that you do not source from Xinjiang, you know, which is it? And nobody could give me an answer. Wow. Yeah. It's very much a case of the heaven heaven is high and the emperor is far away, maybe with the Shanghai branch just doing its own thing in the hope that the HQ would never find out, right? (laughs) Yeah, which obviously doesn't work in this global, you know, globalized age. Um, Whatever happens on the internet will go around the world. And uh, later, Hugo Boss actually said the Chinese uh, social media statement was unauthorized and it was deleted. And a new post was published the next day to say that, you know, Hugo Boss does not source from Xinjiang. And obviously that really angered uh, Chinese online users and they left a, you know, a barrage of anger angry comments on Hugo Boss's Chinese social media accounts. Yeah. So, Linda, we're a week at the other side of this. Um, and to finish up, I wanted to ask you if you've seen any sign of this calming down or is this a sort of locomotive that is still very much going strong? I think uh, there are signs of this calming down because I would feel that the Chinese government also doesn't want this to get too out of hand. There are commentators in China that pointed out, you know, just how illogical this all is. Um, You know, they said, well, shouldn't the Chinese sporting teams, like football teams, basketball teams, shouldn't they be the people to be boycotting these brands? And I think once you get into that question, that will lead on to the Beijing Winter Olympics 2022. Mm -hmm. And any complications to do with that, I think Beijing will want to avoid. So I think there are signs of this coming down and um, maybe China is uh, probably looking to just send a message at this stage. Very interesting. Linda, that's been fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk us through that. We will catch up with you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's China Geopolitics podcast. I've been Finbar Birmingham. We'll be back this time next week. Until then, keep up to date with all the latest news at scmp.com. Wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask, stay safe. All the best. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com 
where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society. All the way down.